Let us pray. Lord, speak freshly to us from your holy word. May we truly hear them. May your words find deep root in our hearts. And may they bear fruit in our lives. To you be all the praise and glory forever. Amen. Reading now from the Gospel of Mark, from the 8th chapter, beginning at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Peter warned them, or rather Jesus warned them, not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've got to say, I I feel rather badly for Peter. Try and put yourself in his shoes. Imagine that you've been following Jesus for months. You've heard him say some extraordinary things. He speaks with power and authority. You have witnessed firsthand his mighty deeds. I mean, he cast out demons and healed the sick and stilled the storm and multiplied loaves and fishes. This fellow does what no other human being can do. You note that the crowds around Jesus are growing. He's becoming more and more popular. It looks to you and to all the world that uh, this man is destined for great things. So when Jesus asks you and all the other disciples the question, who do you say I am, you are ready for the answer. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You are the very anointed one of God. You are the king. And Jesus smiles and nods with approval. But then he says the strangest thing. He tells you that he must suffer. 
that he is about to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed only to rise three days later. You're utterly dumbfounded. <laughs> you don't know what to say. You blurt out, no way, Lord. This isn't going to happen to you. This cannot be. You are the hope of Israel. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. What do you mean you're going to die? It cannot be. No way, Lord. But then with fire in his eyes, Jesus strongly rebukes you. Get behind me, Satan. For you do not have the things of God in mind, but only the things of men. I mean, wow. I mean, words of praise, from words of praise to the strongest kind of reprimand. That's why I feel badly for Peter. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you can blame him. He was told from his mother's knee that when the Messiah comes, he shall go to Jerusalem, he shall throw off the yoke of Roman oppression, defeat evil, and he will rule over the nation with righteousness and justice. He will usher in the, the golden age of Israel. Far better than that ushered in by King David long ago. The idea that the Messiah could suffer and be killed was a totally foreign concept. According to biblical scholars, never in Israel was it heard that the Messiah should suffer. In the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, there are passages that refer to a suffering servant, but there's no evidence in Judaism that that suffering servant was ever connected with the Messiah. Nor is there any concept of the Messiah dying as an atonement for sin. So Peter was just being, being true to what he was always taught. A suffering Messiah made absolutely no sense. In fact, even more puzzling was is that the Messiah would would die at the hands of the religious establishment, the scribes and the, the elders. I mean, we're not talking about some bad people here, you know, murderers and so on. He wasn't going to be murdered, killed by the religious establishment. How can it be? The, the spiritual leaders of the people. So naturally, Peter freaks out. <laughs> no way, Lord. No way. And then Jesus lets him have it. Get behind me, Satan. The Greek used here is the strongest kind of rebuke. Jesus sees in Peter at that moment Satan's attempt to divert him from his mission to die for the sins of the world. Yes, Peter. I am the Messiah. I am the king. And I'm going to Jerusalem to defeat evil, but I'm going to do it God's way and not your way. I'm going to do it not by occupying a throne, but by hanging from a cross. I am not going to Jerusalem to live, but to die. I'm not going to Jerusalem to take power, but to lose it. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule, but to serve. That's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. And note that Jesus doesn't say, I will suffer, but he says, I must suffer. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be killed if God's plan is to be fulfilled. 
I must die, says Jesus to Peter. The world can't be redeemed and made right, and your life can't be redeemed and made right unless I die. Now, all of this is part of the deep mystery of God. It's the way God planned to save a lost and broken world. Jesus went the way of the cross to suffer and to die so that we, made, so that we might live and be made right with God. And we human beings have trouble understanding all this, but then God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are, are not our thoughts. It's just how God chose to do it. Totally contrary to how we would do it, but God is much wiser than us. But then Jesus takes the focus away from what he must do, and he directs his words to the disciples and to what they must do if they would follow him. Again, uh, from, uh, from the chapter here. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The gospel writer Mark notes that Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples, emphasizing the gravity of what Jesus is about to say, including us present-day disciples. We're part of the crowd, you see, along with those original hearers. He calls us to him, and he says, If you follow me, plan on suffering. If I go to Jerusalem to take up my cross, so you too must deny yourselves and take up your cross. Pope Francis says, there is no Christianity without suffering. Some Christian teachers have forgotten that. They preach Christianity without a cross. They say, God promises you the blessings of health and wealth, so name it and claim it. It's your right as a child of God. They forget that following Jesus involves carrying a cross. And it's not all about getting your needs met. Jesus says, whoever would follow me must count the cost. It's going to cost us something to follow Jesus. Sometimes you don't hear that from some TV preachers. So what does Jesus mean when he says, take up your cross? Today in popular culture, the cross is nothing more than a pretty piece of jewelry, right? It's also used as a figure of speech. It's to put up with some inconvenience or hardship. It's my cross to bear. But that is very different from the first century understanding of the cross. For this symbol, this image, would have evoked extreme horror. The cross was the cruelest form of torture devised by man. It was an instrument for inflicting maximum pain. It was all about dehumanization and shame. The Romans reserved the cross for the lowest social classes. 
It was designed especially to punish criminals and to quash slave rebellions. In 71 BC, the Roman general Crassus defeated the slave rebel Spartacus and crucified him and 6,000 of his followers on the Apian Way, which is one of the leading highways leading into Rome. Can you imagine? 6,000 crosses lining the highway as a warning to people who would rebel against the powerful Roman Empire. Can you think of the horror of that? Later in Mark's day, Nero would crucify and burn Christians who were falsely accused of setting fire to Rome. Well, for many in the days of Jesus and since, taking up one's cross to follow Jesus has literally meant losing your life in martyrdom. These martyrs have made the ultimate sacrifice. Someone has offered a striking statement of what it costs to be one of Christ's first followers. Of the twelve disciples, only one escaped a tortuous death. John died of extreme old age in Ephesus. The other eleven suffered violent and painful ends. After betraying Christ, Judas Iscariot hanged himself. Peter, who denied Christ, was crucified head down. Matthew, the author of the first gospel, was slain by a sword. James, the elder son of Zebedee, was beheaded. James, the brother of Christ, was thrown from a pinnacle of the temple and then beaten to death. Both Andrew and Simon were crucified. Bartholomew was flayed alive. And Thaddeus died from an arrow. Philip was hanged against a pillar. Thomas, who doubted, was run through by a lance. Lovely. I think, in particular, uh, today, of the followers of Jesus in the Middle East, in Syria, in particular, who must flee persecution, and many of whom have been put to death for refusing to renounce their faith. They literally have had to take up their cross and die. Now, we don't know how many Christians have been martyred. According to one Christian organization fighting religious persecution, a Christian today is killed for his or her faith every five minutes. Persecution is a recurring problem in more than half of the nations of the world. It's thought that there have been more Christians martyred in the 20th and 21st centuries than in the first 19 centuries combined. Now, obviously, thank the Lord, we're not all called to be martyrs for the faith. Nor should we go out of our way to seek martyrdom. Nevertheless, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross does involve a kind of death a kind of execution. The famous German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is, to follow Jesus, you and I must die to self so that we can be fully and completely alive to God. It means dying to our old sinful nature, crucifying it and burying it so that we can be fully alive unto the Spirit, free to love and live as God intends. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross means saying no to self and yes to God 
no to self-worship and yes to the lordship of Christ, it means that we stop playing God ourselves, thinking that the universe revolves around us and our desires and our wishes. And it means allowing God to be God of our lives instead. It means we relinquish control of our lives, giving ourselves completely over into the care of another. Maybe Eugene Peterson's modern translation of Jesus' words can help illuminate it a little bit in a modern way. Calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. Don't run from suffering, embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? You know, I, I love that. Taking up the cross and denying ourselves means putting Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of our life. You can tell this is a modern translation, right? It means refusing to be a backseat driver, insisting on your own way and your own direction. It means letting him drive, letting him steer, taking you where he will, and you've got to let him lead. Again, that means saying no to self, no to selfish desire, no to what is always easy and comfortable and self-indulgent, and yes to God. Yes to God's will. Yes to the often hard but rewarding path of service to others. Taking up our cross is something you and I do for Jesus' sake. It's something we take up if we dare to follow him. It's an act of self-sacrifice done in his name as a faithful response to his call upon our lives. Our cross is that difficult thing we choose to do because we are his people. And so we choose a hard place or a difficult relationship or a thankless joy. And we get involved, sharing the love of Jesus. Sometimes taking up our cross means doing something for Christ and his church that we know will cause us to be misunderstood, opposed, criticized, and disliked. Taking up our cross may mean taking an unpopular position in, a, in an issue or in a dispute, standing up for what we know to be true and right. Yes, even if we should be called bigots. Taking up our cross may mean throwing ourselves into the struggle against evil no matter the cost. It may mean taking upon ourselves the burdens and the pain and the suffering of others even the neighbor across the street. It may mean going out of our way to forgive a personal enemy. A man by the name of Rufus Mosley describes a cross as a way of life, meaning all hate with evil, all evil with good, all negatives with positives. It means, taking up the cross means, doing the hard thing out of love for Christ. And so all this raises a question for you and me. It's the question of the morning. What are you and I doing that we normally wouldn't do 
because we've made a conscious decision to follow Jesus. That's the question I want you to take home and mull over. What am I doing that I normally wouldn't do because I've made a conscious decision to follow Jesus? Is there any sense in which we are denying ourselves for him? And I'm not just talking about giving up chocolate or our lattes during Lent. But are we deliberately forsaking some important personal comfort or desire so that others might be blessed and served? I mean, on the simplest level, it might mean foregoing lunch uh, and taking that money that would have been spent on lunch out you know, in a restaurant and then directing that money to Christian mission. Maybe it means foregoing the expensive vacation and buying the new car so that that money can be directed to uh, Christ's ministry, the ministry of this church. Maybe it means living below our income level so that money can be freed up for the kingdom of God, so that some money can go to support the ministry of this church. Raising our, our pledge. Backing up our tithe. And giving to other causes that matter. Things that matter, by the way, eternally. Is there anything that we are sacrificing because we dare to follow Jesus? What is our particular cross? What is that difficult thing we are doing because we are Christians? And whatever that thing is, it involves dying to ourselves, to our own selfish ego. So let's face it. Following Jesus is often painful and difficult. You know, we may talk about joyful obedience, but you know what? Sometimes our obedience is not all that joyful. <laughs> it's difficult. It's hard. It's not for those who think only of their own comfort, nor is it for the faint of heart. But it is supremely worth it in the end, for as Jesus himself said, whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Following Jesus in the spirit of self-sacrifice is the way that leads to discover the real you, your authentic you, the authentic life, and to experience the deepest kind of joy and fulfillment. And Jesus himself discovered that joy through sacrifice. For as it says in the letter of Hebrews, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy set before him. He went to the cross. Now the way of the cross, as you know, is completely counter to the values of this self-indulgent culture. It couldn't be more different, which is why this teaching is so radical. Because people hate to hear about self-sacrifice or being accountable to somebody else. It's all about me. Pamper yourself. 
That's kind of the model of the generation, right? It has been for a long time. The me generation of the 70s has not disappeared. One cynical observer of popular culture summarizes the cultural messages about self this, is th this way. He calls it a recipe for misery. He just lists some things. Think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as much as possible. Mirror yourself constantly in the opinions of others. Listen greedily to what other people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. Be sensitive to slights. Oh my, you might be a victim of microaggression. Never forget criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful for the favors shown them. Never forget a service you have rendered. Be on the lookout for a good time for yourself. Shirk your duties if you can. Do as little as possible. I would add, do whatever you want, just don't get caught. Love yourself supremely. So it goes. It's all about self-idolatry. And it's been a problem with, for humankind ever since Adam and Eve in the garden. Human pride doesn't want to allow God to be God. We insist on saying, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But this is a recipe for disaster. For as John Calvin said, the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves. Why is this world in such a mess? Why is it so broken? Why is there so much heartache? Because men and women are obeying themselves. They forget the first commandment to put no other gods before him. Seems that everyone is a god unto himself. So Jesus' call to deny ourselves and to take up the cross is a call to put God in the driver's seat of our life. And if God is driving and has first claim on our lives, guess who isn't driving and who doesn't always get to have things as they please. Jesus had to go the way of the cross. We too, you and I, must take up our cross. So let's follow his lead. It's the way of the cross. It's also ultimately a way to find true fulfillment and joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.